Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. All right, we have a holiday coming up this weekend. It is Memorial Day weekend. And in the state of Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf has announced that the COVID restrictions for the state of Pennsylvania will be lifted on May 31st. Now, that's a good thing. It's long overdue. But the 31st is Monday. That's Memorial Day. Why couldn't he have lifted the COVID restrictions on the 28th, which is Friday? And that would have let everybody enjoy the entirety of the holiday weekend. Why did he have to wait till Monday? That, to me, sounds like an intentional F.U. to the people of Pennsylvania. If he'd open things up tomorrow, think about all the extra revenue restaurants would have gotten. The movie theaters could open back up at full capacity. And it's not just these businesses. Think of the tax revenue that the state would have gotten from this. I'm sure there are a lot of movie theaters that are never going to open back up. I definitely have seen a lot of restaurants close up in the last year. And I mean a lot of restaurants. People don't think about it. Restaurants operate on an incredibly thin margin, and it does not take much to push them into bankruptcy. But it would have been so simple. I mean, it's three days. He could have just said, look, on Friday, we're dropping all the restrictions. Have a good Memorial Day weekend, everybody. But no, he he had to wait till Monday. And I'm kind of surprised he's letting it go at all. All these politicians, they got to be little junior Mussolinis for the last 15 months, and you can tell they absolutely loved being able to tell everybody what to do, when to do it, what they can do while they're there. We gave them the type of dictatorial power that they could have never dreamed of two years ago. And it's going to be hard for a lot of these politicians to let that go. And I'm predicting right now that it is not going to take very long for the next public, quote-unquote, safety emergency to pop up. And all of these restrictions will be right back in place. All the mandates and the fines, they're going to find a reason to use that power again. And it will not take them long. You mark my words. This is going to be something that going forward we're just going to have to deal with probably every other year if they even wait that long in between. But the good news is, is that will just be until they say, screw it, and that's just our lives at that point. And I really think that 100 years from now, people are going to be asking their grandparents, how could you not see what they were doing? How could you not see where this was going? And the only answer is going to be, we were stupid and lazy, and we let it happen. But since this is Memorial Day weekend, and since we still have a few civil liberties left, get out and enjoy yourself while you can. This being Labor Day weekend, I thought I would kick things off today with a few stories of the more unusual things from the history of the U.S. military. And the first story I have has to do with the design of Navy battleships. Now, I'm not talking about modern battleships. Well, sort of. I'm talking about the first generation of the metal battleships, the dreadnoughts is what they were called. This was when they were just doing away with the wooden ships of the line and going to a more modern, steel-constructed battleship. If you look at a modern battleship, the main guns are mounted on traversable turrets, and they're stacked on top of the deck, and they can traverse about 250 degrees, I believe. I'm sure some of them can go 360. 
But if you look at pictures of the very first generation of steel battleships, the main guns were mounted on the sides of the ship. It basically looked like a big cylinder pushed down into the side of the hull. And in the center was this big cannon barrel pointing out. But if you ever see any footage of somebody going through, or if you have the opportunity to tour one of these old dreadnoughts, inside where the main gun actually sat, uh, there were a couple levels within the turret itself that held powder and projectiles, and then the gun was in its own little space. If you go into the area where the gun was actually mounted, you'll notice that there are pads mounted onto the side of that cylinder, and there are straps there. And when you first see them, you simply cannot think of why that would be inside that gun turret. But the reason that that was there is because since that gun was enclosed in a steel cylinder, there was a tremendous amount of concussive force that went along with firing that weapon. What this means, if you were a loader on that ship and you were inside that chamber with the gun when it fired... If you were not strapped down, the concussion would knock you off your feet, and they were having a tremendous amount of injuries to the gunners, simply because when the gun goes off, it throws you into the wall, and they were getting people with broken bones, concussions, some people actually died, and so these pads on the walls were installed. Before the gun was fired, the loading crew would get up against the wall on that pad and strap themselves to the wall so that when the gun went off, they didn't get killed. I understand that at this point in our history, those battleships were very much an experiment, but can you imagine being on a gunner crew and having to live with the fact that when you shot that weapon, it was more likely to injure you and your teammates than it was to hit the target it was pointed at? It's the very definition of a gun that kills on both ends. But that's not the last time that the Army experimented with a gun that would kill its crew as quickly as it would kill the enemy. In the 60s, and this may be a little more common knowledge than the Dreadnought thing, but the Army was testing a nuclear rifle. And that is basically a large cannon that could fire a nuclear bomb. Now, this was quote-unquote portable in that it could be pulled behind a jeep, but it was obviously not a small weapon. Uh, it looked like a howitzer or a field gun that a, a almost cartoonishly on-the-nose nuclear bomb was placed onto the end of it. And then when the gun was fired, it would push the nuclear bomb downrange. Uh, it was never adopted. I don't know that it was even ever test-fired because the yield of the bomb would create a lethal blast radius of about 8 miles. The gun's range for the projectile was 5 miles. So if you fired that weapon, you had however long it took the gun to go down range and drop onto its target to get 3 miles away before you were irradiated. And I just don't believe that an army jeep from the 60s was capable of that kind of speed. Now, obviously, this minor design flaw meant that this nuclear rifle was never adopted and put into service, but I don't see how that got out of the planning stages with that little bit of an overlap between if you shoot it at the enemy, you have essentially killed yourself. Now, those are two examples of the Army doing things to put their soldiers in danger that seem a little bit unnecessary. 
Sometimes, though, it, there is a good reason for things like this happening. In World War II, there was an infantry unit, and I'm sorry, I could not find what the unit was, uh, but it was, again, it was an infantry unit that was set to be deployed to North Africa. So this infantry unit had been training for desert warfare. They were equipped and outfitted for desert warfare. And on the day that they were supposed to depart, the army got some intel and they believed that there was a very credible threat to the Aleutian Islands, which is the island chain off the tip of Alaska. This particular unit was the only unit available at the time. So the plane took off. The men on that plane were expecting to land in a desert. And when the doors opened up, they were in the Arctic Circle. They did not have coats. They did not have thermal underwear. They did not have cold weather sleeping gear. They didn't have insulated boots. Again, these men were expecting to go to North Africa and landed in Alaska. Now, obviously, they had shelter and there was already an army base where they went. So they, they weren't completely just out in the cold, pardon the pine. But I think it was a couple of weeks before they could get cold weather gear to this infantry unit. Can you imagine spending a couple of weeks in the Arctic in very light uniforms and no coat? I find stories like that incredibly interesting. I'm glad I didn't have to live through any of these stories. But stories like that fascinate me. But when it comes to the U.S. military, some of the most fascinating stories you're going to find is the experiments with animals that were done. And I think most people have heard about the bat bombs that we dropped onto Tokyo. Uh, these were exactly what the name sounds like. They were bats that we attached small incendiary bombs to, and a plane flew over Tokyo and released uh, 500 or 1,000, I don't remember the number, but they released these bats, and the idea was that these bats would go and roost in the buildings, and the incendiary bombs were set to go off at a certain time, and the thinking was that it would set Tokyo on fire and cripple the Japanese war effort. Um, I believe that a couple of fires were started, uh, nothing major. It certainly didn't have the effect the U.S. military was hoping for, and that was the only time this was attempted. They never made a second try at this. But animals have been experimented with a lot in the U.S. military. In the mid-1800s, the U.S. Army actually had a cavalry division made up of camels. In 1856, the Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, yes, that Jefferson Davis, purchased several dozen camels and had them shipped over to America, and they were used in the Arizona-New Mexico desert. And from all reports, the unit served brilliantly. The camels worked out great. It's the perfect environment for them. Once the war started, the U.S. military lost interest in the camels. They were disbanded by the end of the Civil War, and they sold a lot of the camels to private collectors and to zoos. The camels that they could not find buyers for were released into the desert. And the last reported sighting of the descendants of one of these camels was sometime in the 1940s. So these camels survived in the wild for basically a hundred years. Another example of using animals in the military that worked out pretty well but just did not take off as an idea is in World War II, the behavioral psychologist B.F. Skinner, and that is the same B.F. Skinner that everybody has heard of over the years, decided that he could train pigeons to act as a guidance system for anti-ship missiles. 
Now, the way he did this is he trained the pigeons to peck at the image of what he wanted them to target. Uh, The pigeons were trained to peck at pictures of battleships. And then there was some sort of system in the missile itself. The pigeon was actually placed in the nose cone of the missile. And there was a screen that would sort of relay images from outside the missile. And if the pigeon saw what he had been trained to peck at, in this case an enemy ship, the pigeon pecking on that screen would direct the missile to adjust its course. That idea sounds crazy, but several of these missiles were tested and they were extremely successful. One of the researchers involved in the program described the pigeons as ace pilots. In the end, the U.S. Army passed on continuing this program. Apparently, it was too crazy even for the U.S. military to give it a try. And this was during World War II when we were trying anything we could think of to gain an advantage. I have one more animal story I want to share with you. This is not from the U.S. military, but this story is too good not to share. Again, this is World War II. Russia had entered the war and was fighting the Germans on the Eastern Front. And the Russian military was looking for ways to reduce the number of German tanks that they were having to face on the battlefield. Someone had the idea of training German shepherds, and probably other breeds as well, but all the photos that I have seen, it's always a German shepherd, to seek out the enemy tanks and to run underneath them. Now, the thinking was, if we train them to run underneath the tanks, we can attach a vest to the dog that has a magnetically triggered bomb, And when the dog runs underneath the tank, the bomb would go off and disable the tank. Man, can you imagine if PETA existed in the mid-1940s? They would be apoplectic on a daily basis. But the Russian military trained up a bunch of dogs, and the dogs being what they are, uh, very trainable, very eager to please, the dogs did fantastic in the training exercises. They, They really, they were looking for the tanks, they would go straight to them. And the Russian military thought, okay, great, we've got a new weapon that we can deploy against Hitler. This is going to work out fantastic. So the day comes that these dogs are sent actually into battle. The handlers release the dogs, and that's when the Russians discovered that they had made a slight mistake in the training. Because the dogs did exactly what they were trained to do. They looked around, they found a Russian tank. And they ran underneath it and destroyed, I don't know how many tanks the Russians lost, but they had trained the dogs on Russian tanks. And so when they released the dogs, the dogs ignored the German tanks because that was not what they had been taught to go after. Now, I'm not a fan of using dogs like that and blowing them up, but there is something that I find very humorous about that little mistake, that little oversight on the Russian military's part. Okay, now a lot of the examples I've been talking about have come from World War II, so I thought it fitting that I end this episode with a story about General George S. Patton. Now, obviously, Patton became very famous in World War II. Uh, George Patton also served extensively in World War I. He actually developed a lot of the tactics that the military used when using tanks and infantry together. He was in charge of one of the first armored battalions in World War I. But even before that, when he was fresh out of military school, he accompanied General Blackjack Pershing on the Mexican expedition to catch Pancho Villa. 
Uh, he was a lieutenant, and again, he was just out of military academy, so I'm going to say he was probably 22, maybe 23 years old at the time, and he was attached to General Pershing's expedition into Mexico. While he was there, they received intel that Pancho Villa may be in a small village, and Patton and about four other soldiers were sent to this village to reconnoiter and see if they could discover if there was any truth to the rumor. Now, as you can imagine, the American troops were not very popular in Mexico right at this very moment. Uh, when they arrived at the town, they were confronted by six men, and it's unclear whether they were part of Pancho Villa's gang or just locals that didn't appreciate the American soldiers being there. But this actually turned into a gunfight, like a OK Corral-style Wild West gunfight. Patton and his men killed or wounded four of the Mexican men, and one of the Mexicans actually made it onto his horse and was trying to flee the scene. It's not known if Patton shot the horse or if one of the other soldiers did, but as he was trying to ride away, the horse was struck by a bullet and fell down. And as it happens, the horse and its rider fell relatively close to General Patton. Of course, at the time, he was a lieutenant. Patton actually stood there and allowed this man to extract himself from where his horse had fallen, get to his feet, and turn around before re-engaging in the gunfight and killing him. Patton did not want to shoot this man while he was on the ground and disoriented. He actually waited for him to get back to his feet before he continued shooting at him. I sometimes wonder how different would history be if the greatest military commander of World War II died in Mexico because he didn't want to take an unfair advantage in a gunfight. And I love this story because the image you have of Patton is standing in a jeep, watching tanks roll by. You think of this modern military commander, but here he is having an Old West-style gunfight with Mexican banditos. And guys, that's about all I have for you today. Um, I hope everybody has a good holiday weekend. Get out there and enjoy yourselves. Uh, if you have any family members that served in the military, most of us do, I'm sure. I have a brother-in-law that was in the Marine Corps. I have an uncle that was in the Army. And actually, one of my great-uncles, I'd uh, never met him. He passed away before I was born. Uh, but he served in Patton's division during World War II. So spend some time with your family this weekend. Have a good time. Enjoy the lifting of the COVID restrictions. If you're in Pennsylvania, you get to enjoy one day of the long weekend without having to deal with any of that crap. But I would like to leave you with a quote from General Patton that I think sums up Memorial Day perfectly. It is foolish and wrong to mourn for the men who gave their lives. Instead, we should thank God that such men lived. All right, guys, have a happy Memorial Day, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much.